invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of James toward the end of the uh, New Testament. It's, it's page 1012 in these Bibles in the pews as we come to James chapter 3. If you're here today for the first time or relatively new, we observe the Lord's Supper not every Sunday, but, but try to do it the first Sunday of, of each month or thereabouts as we'll do today. So the sermon is really a lead-in to our time of communion toward the end of the service. Since it's been a couple of weeks since we were together looking at the book of James, I just want to remind you that before I read the passage beginning in chapter 3, that even though there are many Jameses in the New Testament, those who are <coughs> experts at studying the New Testament uh, strongly believe that the author of this letter is, is James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. He did not believe in Christ as the Messiah until after the resurrection. He became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church began uh, after the resurrection in Jerusalem. God had told them to go into all the world, but they remained there until persecution began. At that point, they were scattered. James now is writing this letter to the to the believers who are part of the dispersion. They've been dispersed. They've been scattered because of the persecution. So he's, unlike many other New Testament letters, he's not writing to one particular church in one particular place, like the church in Rome or Philippi. He's writing to, to all the believers who were, were scattered around the Mediterranean, and he's writing to us as well. He's distinguishing between what is true faith and false faith, what is real and what is fake. And he's given us some indicators of real faith in the first two chapters. Uh, genuine faith perseveres under trial, and it matures through test. Uh, true faith realizes that we are tempted by our own hearts and can be carried away by our own lust, and so we don't blame God when we are tempted. True faith does not show partiality to people based on whether they're wealthy or whether they are poor. A true faith results in action, where we're not just those who say the right words, but we are doers of the word. And as we'll see now in chapter 3, at least the, the first 12 verses, true faith will show up in how we use our tongues, how we speak. So hear God's word beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, 
of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that you would give us attentive hearts and ears and that your seed would go forth and land on good ground and bear much fruit. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Each chapter in the book of James mentions some aspect of our speech. Um, What is more, James talks more about our speech than any other writer in the New Testament. For sure, this is not all that the Bible says about speech. We read earlier from the book of Proverbs. It's it's filled with, with Proverbs about how we use our tongues for encouragement or for harm. We can turn to many other passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament about speech. So this is not all that the Bible says about it. But here, what James is talking about is the power of our tongues, the power of how we use them when we speak to others. And he opens with a warning. It's a specific warning to those who teach. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, as one who teaches, he's talking about teaching God's Word, teaching the Bible, primarily, uh, as one who does that, these are, uh, these are very sobering words, very sobering words. He's not discouraging us from becoming teachers. I mean, if we were to read that, there's temptation to just say, well, I'll, I'll never do that again. Uh, I guess the way to avoid a stricter judgment by people and by God is just not teach. And yet, We know that Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations, and this applies to all of us, not just the church and the leaders in the church, but part of making disciples involves teaching them everything I have commanded you. The writer of the book of Hebrews rebuked his readers because he says, you should by this time be teachers, and yet you are not. They should have matured past where they were in their training. So if he's not discouraging people from teaching, what is he saying? Well, the early church, which grew out of the Jewish synagogue, gave great prominence to those who were the, the recognized public teachers of the law, of the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And a teacher had authority, and a teacher had influence, and, and many people might be tempted to seek that position just because they wanted influence, that it would yield, rather than having a passion for, for actually teaching the truth. And so to them, I believe James is issuing a warning not to seek that role unless you're qualified. And he includes himself when he says, we who teach will be judged with, stricter, with greater strictness. Well, the obvious question is, judged by whom? There's certainly the aspect of people criticizing what you say, and rightfully so. But this, I believe, is talking about, I think from the scriptures, this is talking about being a stricter judgment before God. All of us who teach from any platform, be it from a pulpit, 
or a, a Sunday school teacher or a home Bible study or a small group. We need to consider this diligently. So he's not saying don't be a teacher. Uh, it's really more understand the repercussions of it. Some of us here that are on the staff attended Reformed Theological Seminary when the only location was in Jackson, Mississippi. Now there are several locations. But there, was a cha there is a chapel there, and the pulpit is a very high pulpit. I mean, if this was the floor of the chapel, chapel and you're seated there, uh, the pulpit, if I was standing in it, go ahead and turn around and look, would be about even with the balcony. When R.C. Sproul came to chapel one time and preached from there, he said, this is the biggest pulpit in the whole world, <laughs> just to make the point. Uh, so that was the, you know, out of the Reformation came church architecture that was simple, that put a, sim a central pulpit that raised it up high, stressing the centrality and the authority of God's word, not of the preacher, but of God's word. It was a center pulpit rather than a split pulpit, rather than the two different sides. They wanted it in the middle. And so that type of pulpit uh, was in the church where John Calvin preached, and he preached almost every day of the week or, or taught uh, there in Geneva, Switzerland. And he once said, it would be better for me to fall off, speaking, going up the pulpit, it would be better for me to fall off and break my neck than to ascend that pulpit and not apply to my own life what I preach to other people. We may say, well, that's an exaggerated statement. No, I think he, he had the proper understanding that that should have a sobering effect on any of us that would teach or preach. So I don't believe James is saying quit teaching, just recognize the reality, link it to your own life, that we who teach will receive a more exacting judgment. Now he's going to continue to make application, say some things that apply to those who teach, but also to all, all followers of Christ and how we speak. So here's some general application. Verse 2, he says, we all stumble in many ways. In other words, I mean, the Bible says to stumble is a, a way of saying to sin. We all sin. Speech is not the only area in which we sin, uh, but we all sin by our speech, either when we say something we shouldn't or when we don't say something we should or when we say something that's, that's incorrect or exaggerate or flatter or, or insult or whatever it might be. So he says we all, and he's writing to all believers, we all continually and universally sin. In fact, he goes on in verse 2, a perfect man, it means fully mature. James says if you can tame your tongue, if you're able to bridle your speech, you can do anything the Christian faith calls for. The Baptist of yesteryear, J. Sidlow Baxter, said, the sign of being filled by the Holy Spirit is not speaking in an unknown tongue. It's controlling the tongue you know. That's a sign of being filled by the Holy Spirit. So he moves on and he gives these three comparisons. A bit in a horse's mouth, a rudder of a ship, and a flame that, that starts a forest fire. I've never been to Scotland. I know a number of you have. And if you have one of these, I wish you'd let me see it. But I'm told that they have compiled some of the inscriptions that are on some of the 
tombstones from the 18th and 19th century and that these have been compiled into booklets because it was common at that time for people to chisel into the stone the truth about the person who had died. Can you imagine? And uh, I, I read about one tombstone that's in this cemetery. It's flat, it's drab, it's been beaten down by the weather. You can barely read it. And it says this, and I can't get the phrasing right, but you'll get the idea. Beneath this stone, a lump of, li- a lump of clay lies Arabella Young who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. <laughs> if you were to ask somebody last night, this, this microphone worked. If, if someone were to ask what is a tongue, I might say, well, it's what we use to, to speak and, and taste things with. And a physician might say, well, it's a two-ounce um, slab of muscle. James says it's something far more than that. It, and he gives three examples of how tiny it is, but how much of an influence it has. The first has to do with the bit in the mouth of a horse. The principle here is the tongue controls great power. Um, there's this, this relatively small bit in, this, in the mouth of this large animal, and the bit directs it. The rider directs it with this relatively small thing, and he compares that to the tongue. Now, I read some time ago that the largest horse ever on record in the U.S., maybe it's been surpassed, was a Belgian stallion named Brooklyn Supreme. It died a number of years ago in Iowa on a farm there, but it, it weighed 3,200 pounds. I mean, that's, that's a lot of horse, and yet that horse was controlled by a relatively small two-pound piece of metal in its mouth. And James says, your tongue is like that. It is so small compared to the rest of your body, and yet it controls the issues of life. Its influence is so much larger than it would appear. And some of us here, it has set on set the course of our life, words we've heard, words that have been spoken to us, things we've said to other people, the context in which we grew and how we were taught and what we were taught. Then in, he goes on in verse 4 and he, he makes a second comparison. He doesn't spend a lot of time on these, uh, so I won't, but he, he mentions the rudder of a ship. And just like the, the bit is relatively small that controls the, the horse, so here's this relatively small thing, the rudder of a ship that controls it. Now, we should know more about this in James. And James, we have cabin cruisers on freshwater lakes that are larger than the biggest ships of James's day. So he would be amazed if he were to see ours today, and yet, by and large, except for real special vehicles, they are controlled the same way. There's a rudder. There's a rudder on most of them that directs them. Um, It's hard for me to even think about that without thinking about the the German warship, the battleship that everyone feared, the Bismarck in World War II, and it it had just sunk in less than 10 minutes, the pride of the British fleet, the hood. And England was, was bringing its its military to bear on that battleship, this massive thing, these huge guns. And what happened? An airplane drops a torpedo that hits the stern of the the Bismarck and causes the rudder to jam in a position to where they cannot turn it. It could only go around in circles, and the British fleet came, and they sank it, the most feared vessel on the ocean. Why? Because the rudder, the relatively small rudder, was directing this massive thing, and they could not go 
in, in any more than just one direction. Your tongue is like that. It sets the direction of your life. How many of you, your life has been directed by someone saying something to you? They believed in you or they didn't believe in you and they, they deterred you from something you, you, sh you should have done in retrospect or shouldn't have done. And it, he says a relatively small thing like a tongue, it can do that. And then he says how destructive it is in verse 5. It's like a fire in the forest. It's, all fires start with a small, relatively small match or spark or, or lightning strike. I happened to watch a documentary the other night about the wildfires of, of 2018. And, and not the most, but one of the most destructive was, was called the campfire incident. And it, it started almost a year ago on November the 8th. Now, like many of these fires, they begin in, in desolate canyons, uh, often from one spark that ignites all the forest uh, around them. This particular fire, it covered over 100,000 acres, and it destroyed over 6,453 residential homes and buildings. Think how many, if Macon were to lose that, I don't even know how many houses we have, but 42 people died, civilians died, and and three firefighters. So this, this massive fire that probably began with just a small campfire or a lightning strike. And we, we can see the physical damage, but you and I, so this week, this week, if you are tempted, when you are tempted, to use your tongue in a way, to, to speak something that will damage the reputation of another person, uh, to the person with whom you're speaking, uh, be careful before you light that match. You can incinerate other people, just like the beginning of a, a forest fire. The traits of the tongue in verse 6, he goes on about the fire, and he says that the fire of the tongue can affect the entire body. It affects your social life. It affects your business life. It affects uh, your relationships in the church, the community, your married life, your family. This fire can affect the entire body and set on fire the course of our life. It's incredible. And he calls it the fire of hell. This, there can be a demonic influence behind it. The examples are overwhelming. I did not prepare the sermon in light of what's going on in politics. Trust me. I, I planned this some time ago. Uh, but that is, if I wanted to use it, it's a target-rich environment, but I'll not. Let's go back. I'll use something safe about someone who's dead. In 1887, 22 years after Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated and he'd been buried, 22 years later, there began a whisper campaign that it was not really Abraham Lincoln in the tomb, that it was not really his bones in the grave. It, they weren't disputing that he had died from assassination. They were just saying... That grave does not contain, that tomb does not contain the bones of Abraham Lincoln. So it wasn't like Elvis, like he was still around, they were saying. I mean, they were just saying it's not the right bone. So after all this effort, the family went through humiliation of these, these experts exhuming the body, examining the remains, and confirming it is Abraham Lincoln. He was sealed back in the coffin with lead, put back in the same tomb, and 14 years later, the same thing happened again. 
Another whisper campaign. Those aren't really the, the remains, the bones of Abraham Lincoln. So the family went through, against their wishes, uh, another exhuming of, of the remains a second time. And this time, the casket was taken to Springfield, where it's been ever since. Literally, loose tongues dug up the dead. He says it's tameless. In verses 7 and 8, he mentions this fourfold division of animals that were used in the Greco-Roman world. When he says, for every, verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed. That was the four divisions they would use of animal life. He doesn't mean that every type of beast, every kind of bird, every kind of reptile has been tamed. He means at least one from every division. They had trained bears in Rome in the first century. They had trained dolphins in the first century. So these, in James's day, that was the case. And he says, even though all these things can be tamed, no one can tame the tongue. Does that mean give up? Folks, this week, as I've been studying this and trying to prepare for this and thinking about it, over and over, if, if you just read it, he's saying control the tongue, but you can't do it. It's almost like God says, jump to the moon. I'll try, but you've already, it's a foregone conclusion. I can't do it. He goes on to make it worse. It's full of deadly poison. You ever use poison around your house? Maybe to kill roaches or something like that? Where's the last place you want to put poison? In your mouth. Barbara never says, well, hadn't yet. Chip, taste this and see if it's expired or not before we put it out for the roaches or, or whatever. Hopefully we wouldn't think of packing rat poison for lunch. But how many of us will tolerate the poison in our mouth of character assassination or gossip or slander by suggestion? Listen, let's face the reality. What I want you to leave today with, part of it, is an awareness of how dangerous this is. <laughs> I'm struck dumb, of how dangerous this thing is. You can walk out to that coffee after this service and destroy a person over what you say about them. It can happen right here in the church. He goes on, and I'll wrap this up. He talks about how inconsistent the tongue is. Things in nature are not this inconsistent. He says, one minute we use our speech and we, we sing hymns and we bless the Lord. And, and the next minute we curse our fellow man who's made in the image of God. He says, such behavior is inconsistent. It's absurd. It doesn't make sense. That's what we mean by absurd. And he says it's a, is as absurd as the idea that here's this freshwater spring with all this fresh water bubbling up and forming a river that comes out of it. He said it would be like it being fresh one day and then the next day it's salt water. That doesn't happen, and yet with our speech, it does. Or like a tree, like a fig tree, that you may imagine one day it has figs and the next day it has olives. Of course not. It, it shouldn't, and so he concludes in verse 10, my brothers, this should not be the duplicity with which we, we use our speech. So in conclusion, what are we to do? If he says, control your tongue, but you can't control your tongue, 
the tongue is a fire, the tongue is like a rudder, the tongue is like a bit in a horse's mouth that has this incredible influence even though it's so small. What do we do? Does it mean I just take a vow of silence and never say anything? No. You just live with the tension. We live with the tension. God is saying, I wrote down, Chip, control your tongue, but you cannot. But God can. So the issue here is not self-mastery. You don't want to read James 3, 1 to 12 and say, boy, I'm just, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to do better this week. It's really going to be different. No. It's not self-mastery. It's submission to the Holy Spirit. It's first letting our hearts and our tongues admit that God is holy and that we should aspire to his holiness as his sons and daughters. It's realizing God is not satisfied just with my intentions or my aspirations, but that I need to ask him to forgive me when I fail, which is often in that area and others. And third, that we believe that God is a loving heavenly father and receive his mercy. He loves us as a father loves his children. Do you disown your children when they fail? Hopefully not. You still love them. And if you're a good parent, you say, let me, let me uh, pick you up. What did you learn from that? Now let's, let's try a different approach this next time. I don't know who read it, who's wrote it, but I, I wrote it down this week. He loves us for his own reason, not for our own merits. God has his reasons why he loves us. I don't know why. You don't know why. But it's not because of what we do. If we love the Lord, we'll aspire to holiness. And we strive to please him because we love him. But we rely on his grace to renew us and to purify us as we stand in his grace. So we, we live without fear, knowing that, that our Heavenly Father will not disown us when we, when we fail. Uh, our tongues may be inconsistent. They may alarm us, they may alarm others, but that doesn't change my status with God. We are not totally new, but we are genuinely new. So by God's grace, let us use our tongues to bless the Lord. The place to begin is where the Apostle Paul said in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are all in need of your grace and mercy. None of us stand uh, worthy of your love. We could take this one area, just this one area of our speech, and we see that we're condemned and that we need a Savior. We We need someone else's record to be applied to ours. And so we thank you that he has done that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you take your order of service and let's prepare for the Lord's table by singing together, His mercy is more. Please stand.